Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Constant Contact, a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed. With email marketing, contact management, industry-leading list growth tools, social media ads, and more, Constant Contact helps small businesses connect with customers, find new ones, and sell online, all from one easy-to-use platform. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing. With a 97% deliverability rate, you can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever. Their list growth tools help you find a bigger audience fast. Lead generation landing pages, text to join, and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync Constant Contact's tools with the tools you're already using. Powerful automation tools help you send the right message to the right person at the right time, every time. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit ConstantContact.com. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Over the line, or closing, he's in. A backhander and a save by Tony Esposito. Stan Mikita was a, a small guy, very cocky in those days. A right hand by Magnuson, and he puts that guy down. Magnuson trying to tear his hair out. NBC Chicago's James Naveau. Six seventy, the scores, hockey guy Jay Zawaski. Part of Blue Wire Podcasts. Came off the boards. He shoots. He's going down to the tape. A game-winning goal. The Hawks live to fight another day. Rolling back, circle and drive. Skipped it from The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Chicago's going to be in last place forever. Triple Threat Sports, Fry the Coop, and by the Sins In-Law Group, let's drop the puck. Welcome in, friends. This is another edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. I am James Naveau from NBC5 Chicago, and with me, of course, as always, is the one and only Jay Zawoski of 670 The Score and the I'm Fat Podcast, Mr. Zawoski. This is a special episode we've got today. It is a very special episode. We'll be joined by the aforementioned uh, Kent Simpson of the Simpson Law Group. We'll get his expertise on the Brad Aldrich uh, case. It is ugly. It is gross. I'm going to give you a warning here right off the hop in case you skip around. There are going to be some details in there, so I want to throw out a trigger warning. Uh, if you are sensitive to those things, it's totally understandable. But just be warned, there is some um, description of sexual assault in this podcast, so just just be warned. It's in there. Um, some yep. other uh, news to get to. Jeremy Cowton was a guest on the Blackhawks Talk podcast and had an interesting comment on Jonathan Taves returning. Uh, a former Blackhawk has very tragically passed away. We're going to get to that. So there's a lot to get to on this show. First, I want to tell you how to get in touch with us. You can follow us on Twitter at MadhousePod. We're on Instagram, Madhouse underscore pod. We're on Facebook. Look up the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. And make sure to check out our T Public Shop the link for that store is in our bios. You can get shirts in any sort of color or uh, pattern or style um, at our Tee Public Shop with our logo. We got some other cool hockey designs on there as well. But any color, any design, any kind of shirt you can imagine, or if you want it on a phone case, a sticker, it's all available at our Tee Public Shop. By the way, if you're shopping on Tee Public, even if you don't want a Madhouse shirt, if you use our link, it helps us out. So if you're looking for something else on Tee Public entirely, and you don't have a referral link from somebody else, please use ours, shop at your heart's content, and we'll get a little kickback on that, even if you don't buy directly from our store. But buy from our store, too. We got some really, bye, bye, bye. We got some cool <laughs> stuff in there, and a lot of people, excuse me, have taken advantage of that uh, as our last sale just passed, but there's new sales happening all the time. So I think we should start with the really unfortunate news. I saw earlier this afternoon a tweet from John Buchagross announcing the death of former Blackhawks forward Jimmy Hayes, 31 years old, 
um, found dead in his home. And uh, as of this moment, as of 9.20 p.m. on Monday, August 23rd, there are not any details. There's no cause of death aside from um, foul play is not ex- you know suspected. Uh, but just tragic. You know, Bujagross said he was just with him at a golf outing. I saw he was a guest on the podcast not too long ago. So, man, just it's it's just really uh, tragic to think, you know, a week ago, 31-year-old Jimmy Hayes is everything seems fine, and, and now he's gone. It's, it's really scary, and uh, I, I just don't know what more else to say about it aside from it's just horribly, horribly sad. Yeah, and uh, uh, left behind two young children, which just absolutely yeah. breaks your heart. And um, I, just seeing the remembrances of him on Twitter, he clearly had an impact on a lot of lives. Patrick Kane called him one of his favorite teammates. Um, I saw somebody had a good reaction to his death. They said that Jimmy Hayes would always have you laughing before he delivered the punchline of a joke. Just seemed like an absolutely delightful guy to be around, just a really popular guy. Um, in the locker room and like you said Jay we obviously aren't gonna you know speculate on manner of death or anything like that I think that it's um it's it's just it's really heartbreaking to know that he had a wife and two young children and just at 31 years of age as just so young and it's just it reminds you how obviously fleeting life is and how we all need to not only treasure the moments that we are blessed enough to have but also to you know, always treasure the moments you have with other people and to, you know, leave no things unsaid and things like that, because you never know when the last time it is that you're going to see somebody. I mean, like you said, John Butchergrass literally just saw Jimmy Hayes at a golf course a couple of days ago. I mean, just make sure don't leave things left unsaid. Make sure you treasure every moment that you're given on this earth. And this is just another great reminder. And it's really unfortunate that it has to come under such uh, tragic circumstances. Here's the Blackhawk statement quote. We are heartbroken to learn of the passing of Jimmy Hayes. His warm, his warm personality made an immediate impact in the locker room. And with our fans, we're proud of the memories he made in Chicago, including making his NHL debut in 2011, sending our thoughts and prayers to his family. So very, very sad news. Um, and again, I'm, I'm sort of checking Twitter here as we're recording, and there is no further detail at this time. It, you know, it doesn't matter. It's it's just tragic. And like you said, leaving behind a wife, leaving behind a wife and two kids, and look, his brother Kevin too, who's in the NHL. Uh, just, just terribly sad. And, and I, and I want to make sure we reiterate too. you said it, the outpouring from hockey players, you know, Blackhawks and, and guys around the league, just saying, man, Jimmy was one of my favorite guys, you know, like it, everyone has the same sort of, uh, memories and, and thoughts about Jimmy Hayes as just a beloved, uh, teammate. So rest in peace, Jimmy Hayes, very, very sad. And, uh, boy, it's just, whenever I see someone that much younger than me, pass away who's at the you know the height of their uh you know athletic you know prowess and those sort of things it's just it's scary man it's scary and you just never know you know I'm someone who lost my sister when she was 36 years old very suddenly and um ever since then it's been like okay you just have to remember you know leave on good terms with people even if you're pissed off you know make sure you say you love them anyway because it's just you just never know and uh Oh, just absolutely tragic. So uh, thoughts and prayers to the Hayes family and everybody who has been uh, affected by this death. It's it's just tragic. Yeah, and there's obviously no uh, finer point we can put on it than that. I mean, we uh, obviously, I know you and I didn't obviously spend a lot of time with Jimmy Hayes, but it's just another, like I said, great reminder of uh, how fleeting and how valuable life really is. So, yeah, this is just a really, really sad story when we saw that uh, cross the wires, uh, so to speak, today. Yeah, there's no good way to transition out of this. Um, so I just, as I'm, as I do often, I'll just do it awkwardly. Um, earlier this week, Blackhawks head coach Jeremy Cowton was a guest on the Blackhawks Talk podcast with um, with Pat Boyle and our buddy Charlie Romeliotis from NBC Sports Chicago, and it was a good interview, worth listening to, worth finding that podcast. But a little bit of it stuck with me. And I sent it to James, and I have not heard James's response to my query yet about what he <laughs> thought of the audio. So I'm going to play it back for you here, and you guys can sort of judge on your own. This is Jeremy Cowton when asked, you know, his expectations about Jonathan Tays returning this season. Uh, how confident are you that Johnny's going to be ready to go at the start of training camp? 
Well, hopeful. I mean, we everyone wants to see him play. I mean, he's, he's such a huge part of, of uh, you know what we're trying to do, and and uh, you know he's if when he's healthy, you know he, he can have a huge impact on our team and, and obviously help us win. So, but but first and foremost, you know personally, we just want him to feel good and be excited about coming to the rink and, and feel that he can play at the level. I mean, he holds himself to such a high standard. Uh, you know, he, he, he needs to be feeling good to be able to play. And uh, so that's where we're trying to get him to. So, you know, I'm still, I think it's important. We, we, I have no expectations, you know, we're, we're hopeful, want him to play excited about the possibility, but uh, we got to give it time. James. Mm. Uh, Your to thoughts. me, it does. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to try to assign uh, an emotion here that Colleton is uh, thinking that Taves might not play. I think that really sounds like um, a guy who's maybe not trying to put too much pressure on him, I guess, like to push himself. And obviously, if he's not ready, you want to make sure that you know, he doesn't, you know, permanently harm himself in some way by, you know, ratcheting it up. I think the the way the Blackhawks have approached this off season, it really does seem to me like they're preparing to play with Jonathan Taves on the ice. Um, so I think that that probably speaks a little bit louder to me than maybe Jeremy Colleton being a little bit overly cautious. So I think I'm going to stick with my thought that they are anticipating that he's going to play. But Jeremy Colleton, I think, was probably trying not to heap some undue pressure on him and was kind of trying to uh, maybe just hedge his bets a little bit because I think that's just kind of what hockey people tend to do. Yeah, and I think you're probably right. Um, there were a couple words that stood out to me in that piece Um that Johnny, um, we want him to feel good and be excited. Well, he has to feel good to, to play is what he said, and that did stick out to me too. The be excited part is what stood out to me. And and I'm, I'm going to flat out point the thumb at myself and admit that I'm probably reading way too much into everything said about it's Jonathan August Taze. of the hockey offseason. So. I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what else to do because it is so important to <laughs> to the Blackhawks season that Jonathan Taves plays. If we're talking about a playoff team, he has to be part of it. He has to be. So, yeah. you know, there. I, I just I want to make sure. And if it's not, I have no judgment here at all. I want to make sure that Jonathan Taves' heart is still in it. Right. And, and and to me, that's that's hugely important. Because the what makes Jonathan Taves great, aside from his God-given talent, right? He's obviously a really great hockey player. Is his desire, is his willingness to do more than the opponent all the time, right? He, whoever it is, he's going to outwork him. Whoever it is, he's going to outhustle him. That's Taves' game. And if his heart's not in it, is he the same player? So, you know, I've just I've just heard a couple things, and again, I am fully acknowledging that I am listening to every word said about Jonathan Taves with a fine tooth comb. And I probably shouldn't be doing that considering it's Jeremy Cowton and Stan Bowman and just hockey people just shooting from the hip. Right. I don't think they're measuring and again, hockey every people word. are always very cautious by nature. They are. But, but at the same time, they're not like they're not lawyers with it where they've got a carefully prepared statement. I think Jeremy's just sort of shooting from the hip. But I, I'm just my my natural anxiety, which I've been very vocal about over the last few years, has me literally picking apart every word of every statement saying, what does that mean? Be excited. Does that mean he's not excited? Does that mean he doesn't want to play? And then Jeremy says, I have no expectations. Mm. And again, probably you're right. You know, Occam's razor says the most logical conclusion is probably the right one. Right. Well, he's just saying, like, I don't I don't want to put expectations on it because i don't know i'm hopeful i don't know but hopefully he can play and it seems right now like okay maybe right he's skating he's doing all the things but yeah. I, I can see there's no there's no benefit for Cowden or bowman or whoever to be like yep we expect him back because then if he's not then what yeah then you look like a moron right so, so i think they're just sort of protecting themselves uh, with the whole thing, which is probably smart, but I just I just need to talk through my anxiety sometimes. Yeah, and you've that, allowed and me like to I do s- it, and I appreciate it. Hey, man, 
That's fine with me. I just wanted to help to alleviate some of that, and I always kind of try to take the most you know likely middle road. I suppose it's really hard sometimes not to get too like amped up or too down when it comes to uh, developments in a story like this. So I'm just going to kind of try to. Keep it on the even keel with Taves. I'm trying to maintain my balance here with him just because I do obviously really want to see him play, and he's hugely important to the Blackhawks that he gets back out there and does play. I'm just going to try to take it easy, man. We still got almost two months until the season starts. Let's just go with the flow, bro. I appreciate your lack of anxiety. (laughs) I really do. At least in this instance, I could – point in a lot of directions with places I have anxiety, but I'm going to try to keep my uh, cool on this one. Speaking of Jeremy Cowton, you saw something very interesting today that we discussed in our pre-show meeting. Would you like to share it with the class? Why? Yes, I would. <laughs> um, so, okay. This is, uh, I have been on the record that I, some of the things that I see on the Twitter account, ineffective math, it's run by Micah Blake McCurdy he sometimes makes graphs that I just do not understand and I think are way overly complicated. And if you put a gun to my head and said, read this, I'd say, duh. Me brain, not smart. Yeah, pretty much. And so with that caveat that I am not good at math at all and sometimes struggle with some of these visualizations, he had a really interesting one today, which basically was his attempt to quantify a, the quality of a coach's system. So that is both offense and defense. And what he did was he used a statistic called expected goals, which is essentially what are the odds that an unblocked shot will go into the net against a specific system. The league average of expected goals on both offense and defense is 2.403, according to his graph. And so what he did is he plotted out all of the NHL coaches and how their teams last year performed on both offense and defense. So obviously in a graph, you want your, you know, the, the good is always going to be the top right quadrant of the graph. The bad's always going to be the bottom left quadrant, that kind of thing. Jeremy Colleton, you, you want to take a guess anybody on where Jeremy Colleton ended up on this thing? I do. I do. Go Mr. ahead. Go I'm going to guess bad. Jeremy Colleton, according to this graph, is the worst defensive system in the NHL. The worst. He is the worst of all 31 coaches. Obviously, the Seattle Kraken not included in this mix. So, yes, he is the worst. And then, to make matters worse, he's right around zero in terms of uh, offense. So, basically, middle of the road offensively dead last defensively not a good place to be so they're the bottom left quadrants of this would be known as dull bad so that would be jeremy colleton and i don't think i've ever heard two words that better describe him yay (laughs) now to be fair to be fair Jeremy Colleton hasn't exactly had a whole bumper crop of talent to work with. He's obviously going to have quite a few better pieces in place this year. I know you and I have talked extensively about the fact that we think the Blackhawks could have two really solid defensive pairings up top. Hopefully that'll help a little bit. Hopefully having the Vezina Trophy winning goaltender will help a little bit. But just seeing that graph today... Not the not the vote of confidence that I needed on it in August twenty third of hockey off season, man. No, so when I was looking at uh, ineffective math at ineffective math on Twitter, that is Blake Michael Blake McCurdy's uh, Twitter account. I saw this on my phone, and I opened this thing, and I'm like, "Where is Colleton?" Like I'm zooming in and out, like zooming all around, like what the hell? I'm looking at the cluster of coaches. Then I'm like, "Oh yeah, all the way down there." It is like it is comically <laughs> separated from the rest of the coaches. So if you're trying to like guess the uh, defensive expected goal rate, it, it's like ten is like the lowest number they show. It it probably goes to fifteen. So I'm gonna guess like thirteen or fourteen. The next highest is like seven. <laughs> That's how far yeah. down the graph Jeremy Counton is. However, James, did he make? a collaboration slash communication graph. 
It almost sounds like we're talking about the Chicago Bears now. <laughs> I know, really, doesn't it? But I remember snarky Pat Foley. There's a collaborative communicator that, as he stands. Gee, I wonder oh, why Pat Foley's not long for the broadcast booth with well, zingers like that. I don't think it was necessarily that zinger. No, no, no. Maybe I, that other zinger towards the end of the year. But uh, we, we we have some fun at Pat Foley's expense. But it's, um, yeah, that uh, that graph obviously I thought it was very indicative of the struggles the Blackhawks had last season. They weren't a bad offensive team. They just lacked some firepower due to injuries and a couple other uh, circumstances. But yeah, they're defense was just putrid last season and so this is hardly surprising I think the other surprise that on the list of guys that they have on the graph I'd have thought Barry Trotz would have been further up in terms of uh, defense on Mm -hmm. the graph and I also would have thought Dave Tippett would have been further to the left in terms of uh, his uh, offense because that dude just loves grind 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 all the freaking time but he made it (laughs) a little bit towards the middle I will say, too, that McCurdy sort of acknowledges, like, this is a bit of an exercise in futility, but I'm just going to give this thing a shot. Well, I mean, it is partly an exercise in futility because of the data that the NHL provides. I was reading an interesting article about uh, the expected goals metric on Jets Nation, and they did warn that it's not like the end-all, be-all, of course. Like, there's no... No such thing as a perfect statistic, especially when the NHL is the one providing you the information. So well, they're on um, top of everything technology wise. You know that they're try finding a statistic on their website, man. Any. <laughs> I just want to know how many goals he has. I, I literally, dude, I like wanted to know like the face off percentage win of a Blackhawks player. Good luck. And I about had I almost fell on the ground because I just couldn't process what I was seeing. Speaking of having trouble processing what you're seeing, before we take a break and get to our interview with Kent Simpson of the Simpson Law Group, I, I tweeted out uh, on Sunday night. It's a tweet from Bar Down on Twitter at Bar Down. The slug is Mark Andre Fleury just toying with him. It's Mark Andre Fleury in goal against anonymous hockey dudes who are just peppering him with shots in close. He's get saving, used to it, man. I know he's saving everything. In the final moment, he stops a a, a shot, falls on his back, okay? The puck somehow squirts out to his left. Flurry is laying on his stomach. Shooter all alone to Flurry's left, shoots, and Flurry glove saves it from his stomach from about a foot away. It is absolutely unbelievable. And the practice stops so the offensive players can give him a stick tap. They're so blown away by what they just saw. Find this highlight on my Twitter. I'm sure if you're a hockey fan, you're following Bar Down already, but you've got to see this save. It's absolutely sick. I don't know where it comes from or where it was or what happened, but uh, Bar Down tweeted it on the 22nd of August, and it's just fantastic. So make sure you find that. Check my it's Twitter. hockey porn, y'all. It's great. It, it certainly is. All right. Speaking of, uh, I guess, food porn, Fry the Coop, frythecoop.com, the best Nashville hot chicken you're ever going to have. I'm going to share because we've reviewed Fry the Coop many, many times, right? You and I, over the years, we've talked about it a lot, but a review popped up online for Fry the Coop that they shared on their social media, and I think it would be a benefit to our audience if I shared it as well. This review from Rodwan, five stars. Unconvinced, the Lord himself goes back into the kitchen and makes the chicken. Because when I tell you I never, ever, ever had a sandwich this good in my life, this place is also why I decided to move from Denver to Chicago. Best, best, best chicken sandwich I've ever tasted. Not even saying this to say it, but trust me, I'm one of those people who couldn't care less to write a review, but Fry the Coop has definitely earned a spot in my heart. I wish I could give it 10 stars. I eat it every day and night and can never get tired. This is what I'm talking about. This place puts other chicken sandwich shops in the dust. You will never be disappointed. My favorite is the spicy butter chicken sandwich. A must try. That is from Rodwan. That is a review left for Fry the Coop, and I couldn't agree with her more. So... Try it for yourself. Go to frythecoop.com. Find the location nearest you. You've got Oak Lawn, Elmhurst, West Town, Prospect Heights, and Tinley Park. So chances are, if you're in the Chicagoland area, you're pretty close to a Fry the Coop. You're going to love it, too. All right, quick timeout. When we come back, we're going to have our interview with Kent Simpson 
of the Simpson Law Group. And just one more warning before we get to it, there is some detail about sexual assault. Uh, so if that's going to be a, a trigger for you, totally understandable. Just want to throw that warning out there one more time before the interview begins. We'll be right back with more on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Welcome back into the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Jay Zawoski here in Homewood. James Naveau out there in lovely Kankakee at his palatial Naveau Estates mansion and horse farm. He's really just owning the whole uh, equestrian game out there in yep. Kankakee. See, you get to make up jobs for me. I get to do the same thing for you. The Please, Madhouse. everyone, come to my estate. <laughs> I shall feed you fine food and give you brandy. Yes. Uh, serious episode today, so we need a little bit of levity. But um, obviously, uh, this next segment with our sponsor, Kent Simpson, uh, is going to really focus on the Blackhawks uh, and Brad Aldrich uh, lawsuit. So let's tell you about Kent first. After over a decade of prosecuting homicide cases as an assistant Cook County State's attorney, Kent opens an, his own firm over 20 years ago. He specializes in all forms of personal injury cases, slip and fall cases, injuries at work, accidents involving vehicles, trucks, motorcycles, etc. His firm's results speak for themselves with millions recovered for their clients. Simpson Law Group charges you no fees unless they win for you. So call for a free consultation, 312-332-2107 or visit Simpson lawgroup.com that's s-i-n-s-o-n lawgroup.com don't go off sides go top shelf call now kent Sinson is joining us here in moments but before we get to the interview james i'm going to have you sort of reset the facts of the case so everyone is calibrated for this interview yes so there there are two uh different lawsuits they're both linked obviously to brad aldridge but one specifically involves a player for the Blackhawks who was with the team during the 2010 Stanley Cup run um, in court documents. He is known as John Doe One. Uh, this player accused Aldridge of inviting him over to his apartment under the guise of giving him advice on video clips, things like that. While the player was at the apartment, uh, Aldridge uh, allegedly turned on pornography, began to masturbate in front of the plaintiff, and then the player tried to leave, but Aldridge threatened him with a bat and then allegedly threatened to ruin him financially and destroy his career and then engaged in non-consensual sexual activity with the player. Um, the lawsuit alleges the Blackhawks should have known about this because he had had uh, repeated instances of misconduct in previous positions. One of the uh, positions was with a junior hockey team in Michigan. The allegation is that the Blackhawks should have not only known what was going on with him, but also alleged that he assaulted another unidentified Blackhawks player and that the team failed to report this to police. And the Blackhawks have filed the motion to dismiss uh, this particular lawsuit based on the fact that uh, the player was over the age of 18, uh, wasn't a minor, wasn't disabled in any way, and they said that they did not have a statutory requirement is the term that they use to um, uh, report that to police. So that's essentially the first lawsuit with John Doe 1 is that he was a Blackhawks player was allegedly assaulted by Aldrich. The team failed to act, let him kind of skirt away and get away with it. Um, that's the allegations of the first lawsuit. The second lawsuit is John Doe 2. This was when Aldrich was hired by a high school in Michigan in March of 2013. Uh, this player was 16 years old, said he was sexually assaulted by Aldrich. And the reason that this is linked to the Blackhawks is because they allegedly provided a positive review and or employment verification of Aldrich and failed to inform employers of the alleged uh, misconduct that had occurred um, in 2010 with the team. So that is why the Blackhawks are linked to that case. Um, Brad Aldridge was convicted um, of sexual assault in Michigan, is a registered sex offender in Michigan. So there is just a very disturbing pattern of behavior that kind of runs through all of these lawsuits. But John Doe 1 and John Doe 2, just for a point of clarity, were not both Blackhawks players. John Doe 1 was. John Doe 2 was a youth hockey player in uh, Michigan. All right. I think you did a fantastic job of summarizing this. So without further ado, let's get to our interview 
with Kent Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. Joining us now on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is our, I wouldn't say longtime sponsor, but decently longtime sponsor, Kent <laughs> Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. He's been a great asset to us uh, ever since he's uh, jumped on the podcast, especially during this uh, really unfortunate, really ugly Blackhawks scandal, which uh, we all know is not going away anytime soon, nor should it. Uh, Kent, you are the legal expert here. I just want to sort of get your uh, general opinion on what do you think about the investigation so far from what you've heard, from what you've read? Uh, does it have legs? Are the Hawks going to be in some real trouble here? Do John Doe 1 and John Doe 2 have themselves a case? Yeah, well, those are a lot of co- important questions, and uh, I think hopefully we'll see this play out over a period of time. Let me start with kind of your initial question, though, which is what do I think of this investigation? And, you know, I've seen this happen a lot. And, and my big concern on this thing is, is that investigators, in my experience, are loyal to whoever is paying their bill. And I mean, it, it sounds kind of crude to say that, but the bottom line is, is that that's if there's any questions or any doubts, the, the whoever's paying your bill can't go under the bus and everybody else is vulnerable. So then the question is, is who is paying the bill on this investigation? And it's it's Rocky Wirtz or it's the ownership of the Blackhawks. And, you know, the thing that troubles me so much about these situations is I hate it when people investigate themselves. And that's essentially what's going on here. I mean, for a long time, we had problems with uh, people perceived excessive force used by the Chicago Police Department. And who did the investigation to see if it was excessive force? The police department did. And, you know, the problem with that is, is that guess what? They never found that they did anything wrong. And, you know, I've seen it in a lot of things. The the Catholic Church likes to investigate whether or not the priests are abusing kids, you know. And guess what? Their investigation never finds that they did anything wrong. And, uh, you know, then I've even seen college campuses where there's been sexual assaults and People, the the people that run the, the school are like, we can't have rapes on our campus. And so all of a sudden they're going to investigate themselves. And then they wonder why people look back on these investigations and they say they're not fair. And I just think at this point, someone needs to stand up and say, you know, as a society, we're just sick of people investigating themselves and, 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 and then trying to suggest to the world that whatever result they reached is somehow a fair result. And because that doesn't mean there might not be truthful things in it, but I start out when people investigate themselves with a big bunch of skepticism. And that's what I have towards this investigation. Um, well, let, and- me ask you, let me jump in real quick, Kent. And, and I think, you know, as a legal expert, you would know what is the way this should be done. If we're looking at the Blackhawks case specifically, yeah. the way I've seen it from the beginning, I think James would agree the NHL should be the the organization who is investigating this case. They should be hiring their investigators to look into this. Do you agree or is there or is there an angle yeah, on that? I mean that would of? that would certainly get us closer to some kind of impartiality than more than we have right now. Um, you know, the other part of this too is you I suppose you could even have the victim's family, the victim's lawyer and you the Blackhawks sit down and jointly hire somebody. You know, and then then the money's coming from both sides. And, you know, you just you tell somebody, listen, you're getting paid by both sides. We want you to be a straight shooter. We want you to interview everybody and call you call like you see it. That has a lot better chance than what we're doing right here. And I think that this investigation is uh, more than willing to throw anybody under the bus except for ownership. Okay, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't think that they're going to like go light on McDonough or they're going to go light on McKasick, McKasick, or they're going to go light on Stan Bowman. I mean, if those guys got to go, I think that they're prepared to anybody can go. But if this investigation gets too close to ownership, you know, I don't trust it. I mean, and that doesn't mean what they conclude there isn't true. It's just that you just got to bring a hefty hefty amount of skepticism in when when the when they're making judgments on the people that hired them. It's just that's how you got to look at these things. And I know there's been some speculation that there obviously could be some type of a resolution to this investigation specifically, and I guess somewhat the near future. We obviously don't have a concrete date, but I would assume 
that there is not going to be a finding made in this investigation if the litigation is still pending, correct? I mean, I don't think that the Blackhawks would be assigning faults if this litigation was still pending. And from all intents and purposes, it looks like it's going to go before a judge at some point, just based on the way that uh, things have proceeded so far. Well, John Doe 1 right now is in front of uh, Judge Ehrlich, um, and John Doe 2 right now is in front of Judge Lawler, who just announced his retirement, and they haven't designated who's going to take his place. Um, you know, I know both judges will well. I got a lot of cases in front of both of them. Um, you know, I don't, I, I would say this, I've had cases where organizations knew they screwed up and they wouldn't fire the guy that was at fault because they didn't want to show weakness in the litigation. Mm -hmm. And so that almost becomes the the, the get out of free jail card for this guy, at least as long as the litigation uh, is still going on. So, yeah, there is definitely some part of that. But I mean, you know, take a look at how this went down. Jake Dow talks to Nick Boynton. Nick Boynton talks to Paul Vincent. Paul Vincent talks to James Gary and Brian Higgins. And then we have this meeting with McKasick, Bowman, McDonough, and James Gary, right? And that's as far as we know about who did the, like, investigating, right? We know there had to be something that came after that. But the key question is, is what happened next? And, you know, if I'm in that meeting, that last meeting that we know about, you know, and 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 all of a sudden, Vincent walks out of the room. Those four guys got to look at themselves and figure out what do we do next, okay? And if I'm the lawyer sitting there with them, I tell them exactly what we're going to do. We're going to call the head of human resources. We're going to get them to hire Jenner and Block to go investigate the crap out of this thing. And then what we're going to do is we're going to suspend Allridge pending the, the results of the investigation, and then we'll make a decision about whether we're going to let him resign or we're going to fire him. Okay. Now that all could have happened then. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, the, the, I get the Hawks want, worrying about their reputation, but they don't do themselves a favor and they don't do any of the victims a favor by burying this thing at that point. Um, you know, th- th- it's not enough to just say, well, we don't want anybody else in our organization to get hurt. I mean, they have broader responsibilities on this. And, you know, um, there's just a, a long history. I mean, uh, Graham James uh, was that hockey coach up in Canada that got mm-hmm. was having sex with his players, eventually got convicted. There was the Penn State scandal. There was Chico Andradas. I mean, you know, hockey and sex is, is a nasty combination, but it's not like it's never happened before. And um, so, you know, the other part of this, too, is, is that, um, you know, the company, if, if, if right when those four guys have that meeting, that if the company responds the right way, and by the company, I mean the Blackhawks, they pretty much have a get out of free jail card as long as they do a few things. One is they got to follow their, their, their handbook. They got to have a handbook on sexual assault and sexual harassment, and they have to follow it. They have to investigate fairly. They can't retaliate about it against anybody that came forward. They can't punish anybody's job status as a result of coming forward. And they can't, if it's a, if it's a supervisor or it's a owner, that's the offender, they need, you know, that needs to be taken into account. But assuming they do all those things, a lot of times the law gives them a free pass, you know? And um, so, you know, the key question, and one of the key questions in this case right now is who was the decision maker? And those four guys in that room, I, I'm going to tell you, they weren't hired for that, but they probably know who the decision maker was. And the decision maker is the highest ranking person that knew what was going on and could have changed the outcome or the way it was handled. I want to call to attention something Rick West had published on August 12th. This is an interview uh, with Paul Vincent, and this is a quote. I come in and Al McIsaac says to me, what do you know? I said the same thing I told Gary and Higgins, and with that, McIsaac did most of the speaking. He said, we've got it handled. You're assuming something happened, and we're going to look into it. You don't need to look into it anymore. You don't need to worry about this. We'll take care of it. You can leave now. Now, this creates, and and there's a lot of stories similar to this that create a bit of a gray area because the whistleblowers in this case told management they were told it would be handled, and then they see Shortly after the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup, Brad Aldrich is gone. So I think there's a certain group of people in the organization who look at this and say, okay, we told them 
he's gone. It must be handled. And they wash their hands of it. And quite frankly, if I was in my workplace and I told my boss, hey, my coworker X is being creepy or whatever with coworker Y and the next week or so that guy was fired, I would assume it's been taken care of. So this whole gray area of where did the line of communication stop? But if all four of those guys are in the room, Bowman, McIsaac, uh, McDonough, etc., all those guys, if the investigation finds it to be true, I don't know how any of them can be off the hook. And I think that's my question is, how do you look well, at anyone who was in that room and say, okay, we find that you were there, but we're not going to hold you accountable for it. Well, so I, I'm going to have a different opinion okay. a little bit than you have. And that is this. I mean, first of all, none of those four people were hired for this purpose. At the end of the day, the person that really probably should, this should have landed on their desk is the head of human resources, Marie Sutra. I've never met her. I never heard of her. I've never seen her name mentioned, but that's where it should have been ended up. And then she should have led the investigation because that's her job. Okay. It's not Stan Bowman's job, but the other part of this too, and that I, you know, you, that's where, why, in other words, at the end of the day, the decision maker needs to take the heat. And the question is, is who was the decision maker? And I've had so many cases against organizations where, you know, I go into the lawsuit and I ask a simple interrogatory, who was the decision maker? And the other side, the company makes it look like it was a trick question. It's not a (laughs) trick question. Everybody, these cases are all handled by the highest ranking person that has decision making authority. And we just simply don't know who that is. And, you know, I mean, if, if McDonough said at the end of that meeting to the other three, let me go talk to Rocky and then we'll see, you know, I don't know. Then that that's a way to get to the top, but maybe all four of them walked in and talked to Rocky. Maybe none of them talked to Rocky and, you know, it was, they, they just turned to James Gary and said, you hand. I mean, we just simply don't know who the decision maker was. And the reality of it is it should have been handled by the head of human resources. And frankly, she's out of her league. She needed to bring in Jenner and Block right then and have them do this kind of investigation that they're trying to do right now. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's a real shame that, that this investigation just didn't happen in 2010. Because, again, the law is pretty good about protecting companies that do the right thing right away. And that just simply didn't happen in this case. Well, I think it's, that's all anybody wants. That's all anybody right. wanted. It's look, bad stuff happens at every company. You don't know the history of every employee. And even if you did investigate fully, sometimes things just don't show up in reports. If you report it immediately and handle it, no one's pissed, right? Oh, wow. This happened to the Hawks. And during the cup run, they reported it and fired the guy. Great. Yeah. Good on yeah, them. I mean, that that yeah. makes them look good. That would, that would have been the right thing to do for sure. You know, let me say this too. I think that the John Doe one lawsuit, I wouldn't call it a fatal flaw, but I mean, I think that the Hawks are going to have a good chance to get that case dismissed. And it, it's, it's the case that has the chance to take the depositions of all the people that are intimately involved and that could really show exactly what really happened here. But the problem with it is, is that it happened in 2010 and the lawsuit wasn't filed till 11 years later. And mm-hmm. there just isn't the kind of statute of limitations generally in Illinois are two years 11 years just doesn't make any sense. And and the other lawsuits in a completely different category, because after the priest pedophile scandals happened, the Illinois legislature basically said that if you're under 18 and you get sexually assaulted, we're going to extend the statute of limitations 20 years. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the statute of limitations in John Doe 2 is 20 years, which they have not violated. Right. For for the uh, benefit of our listeners. I'm sorry, Ken. Could we. Perhaps uh, just give us a quick kind of differentiation between the lawsuit involving John Doe 1 and the lawsuit involving John Doe 2, just for the uh, benefit of our listeners. Yeah, so that's really important, crucial uh, difference. We don't know, I don't know, and uh, whoever knows isn't talking about the identities of John Doe 1 and 2. But what we can Mm -hmm. tell you is this, John Doe 1 was a uh, hockey player within the Blackhawks organization somewhere. We don't know where. Uh, I know Jay has mentioned on previous podcasts that it was not one of the superstars, but we don't really know who, whether this was a guy that was in Rockford a lot or whether he was on the you know, fourth line a lot. 
I would have no idea. The second lawsuit in distinction is not an employee of the Chicago Blackhawks. He was a 16-year-old kid that got sexually assaulted by Aldridge in Michigan. And um, that that is a completely different set of facts because, again, you, you know, um, and I should talk about how the law is different on that type of issue, but um, that's not an, like a, a sexual assault by one employee and another employee, like the first one allegedly, you know, is the, the allegations in the first one are really a, a different kind of animal. Um, there's a gender violence statute that is in Illinois that's, that was uh, passed a few years ago that just is a super powerful tool to prosecute, you know, sexual assault cases. And I'm very surprised that the plaintiff's lawyers in these two cases haven't brought something under the Gender Violence Act. Having said that, because under the Gender Violence Act, you can go after the employer and specifically, and there's cases that say that. The tough part about the Gender Violence Act is the same thing that you run under the Tort Act, which is you got a two, you got a seven-year statute of limitations under the Gender Violence Act, and again, now we're talking eleven years. So you're going to have a real tough time um, under the uh, first case getting past the statute of limitations. I should say too, and I don't think this matters. It shouldn't matter. And Judge Ehrlich is a great judge. Um, and, uh, but he, he's, he's openly gay and there is allegations that, um, there were some statements made that were gay slurs <laughs> and, yes. uh, I by think teammates, he be, by the way, for clarity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think he will be particularly sensitive to those kinds of concerns, but I mean, the law is the law too, about statute of limitations, the way the plaintiff's trying to get away around it, the statute of limitations problem in John Doe one is by this repressed memory argument. And um, I've seen the repressed memory arguments succeed when the person who was sexually assaulted is a minor or under 18 years of age. It's just a huge uphill battle to say, this happened when I was an adult and I just repressed this memory for 10 years. Uh -huh. And um, it's, you know, is it possible that Ehrlich would get, let it get past a motion to dismiss on that and let some discovery occur? Yeah, that's definitely possible. But it's a huge challenge. Uh, whereas the second one's kind of clean uh, in the sense that you don't have that kind of defense. I haven't heard a defense to dismiss the second one that I think is going to be successful. But as I understand it, the Hawks have not filed a motion to dismiss the amendment mm. complaint yet in that one. So, um, so, but but they have filed one in the first case, right? And I think that well, was uh, based on the fact that he wasn't a minor, he wasn't disabled, and I think that was their argument was that he basically was over eighteen and should have brought these concerns forward sooner and should have filed the lawsuit sooner. Am I uh, reading that so kind of motion to dismiss that, correctly? Yes, you are absolutely. And but I would say this about the the first one: they've already filed an amended complaint, which is kind of the plaintiff's lawyer way of saying, "Let's do a do over. Let me take another shot at pleading this." And the the the, the motion to dismiss on the statute of limitations thing for this amended complaint has not yet been filed. At least as of last week, it hadn't been filed. So, um, you know, we'll see. I would imagine that they will mimic the arguments they made them when they were trying to dismiss the original complaint. Um, if you guys don't mind, maybe I can make a few comments about the second John Doe case um, and just tell you a few thoughts I have about that. So the key on that is, is that um, it, it gets down to this question of should they have fired Aldridge versus letting him resign. And by letting him resign, did they basically tell Houghton High School, which is where this kid was and got sexually assaulted, that this guy was okay, right? And you know, the reality of that is, is it gets down to again, who made that decision to let him resign rather than fire him? I would love to take Bradry Aldridge's deposition and find out who came to him and said, we're going to let you resign rather than be fired. And I would also love to hear from the head of human resources to know whether or not she was in the loop on what was even going on, because human resources is who Houghton High School is communicating with. So 
we really need to know what they knew because if they didn't weren't even in the loop and they just thought this guy was fine and he resigned for reasons that had nothing to do with sex, they could have been misleading to Hooten High School and not even known that they were being misleading. Mm. Let me ask you this, Kent, real quick. Is a po- like why would the Blackhawks opt to ask him to resign rather than firing him? What is the advantage in not firing him for the Blackhawks? Well, particularly, you know, what's so troubling in this case is they fire McDonough, who, who, who did heroic things to make the Blackhawks good. But Brad Ray Aldrich, which is sexually assaulting uh, two of its players, they let him resign. Like, does that just scream out at you That's like this shouldn't happen? They, shouldn't they be letting McDonough resign and they should be firing Aldrich? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess the, the only advantage of letting him resign is just simply this. We didn't have a problem, right? He just quit and we don't have to explain to you why he left. But who would right? ask? But the, like, who would well, say? All like- the, yeah, all, I'll tell you who would ask. One is if you fire him, people are going to notice. Right. So you might notice as being in part of the media. OK. And so some media person might ask. Right. So that's that's one problem. The other person that might ask is eventually who did ask, which is all his future employers. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah, you ask who was going to ask. The media might ask because it's the Blackhawks and it's not every day they turn around and fire somebody. And the other person that might ask is his future employers, which is exactly what happened. So the key thing here is if you don't do a solid investigation, then you don't know whether or not you need to fire him versus whether you're going to let him resign. And if McIsaac gets up there and says, we got this handled just to shut down all investigations, but then they never hire somebody like Jenner and Block to go in and really dig deep on what's going on. How do they even know enough to make a decision? And keep in mind, if they fire him because and they're wrong about their reasons, in other words, they haven't been fair to him, they could face a defamation lawsuit. So they got to kind of like think twice, like they got to do some real hard work. But when you've got two victims on something like this, yeah. you know, my, my gut feelings telling me, listen, this is not just one, this isn't a one-off. I mean, the fact that it's two victims really, really st- speaks strongly that this guy needed to get fired. The Kent, other part of this real too- quick, Kent, just yeah. for, for clarity for our audience, I'm glad you, you mentioned this. I want to make sure everybody knows. Jo- so there, there are actually three people in this case, John Doe one, and a teammate right. alleged that they were sexually assaulted. The teammate is not is not part of this lawsuit. The other the other person with the Brad Aldrich thing as a Blackhawk prospect does not want to pursue this thing. Okay, so that's yeah, John yeah. Doe one. Yeah, it, it, apparently he's adamant that he not that this that, that this be not pursued. Right, which is and, interesting. So there are two Blackhawks in John Doe one's case. John Correct. Doe two is a high school hockey player from Michigan who is alleging that the Hawks gave the letter of recommendation, et cetera. So I know it can be confusing. So in the case one, think of John Doe one as case one, that's two players. And John Doe two is mm-hmm. one player, the high school player just for, and clarity. they did make very clear in the amended filing in John Doe two, that this wasn't just an employment verification thing. This was a positive review from the way that I read the amended complaint. Yeah. And so that's one thing that we don't know. I mean, there, there was one point in the amended complaint where they use the words and or, in other words, like a positive review and or just kind of a verification of employment, kind of some wiggle room on that thing. I mean, mm. you know, the key the key witness there is the person at Houghton High School that actually talked to the Blackhawks. Like, what were they yeah. told, you know? And, you know, because they, they have every every interest in telling the truth. And frankly, if they would have gotten a bad review from the Hawks, they, I'm sure they would have never hired this guy. Nobody would have. So, and, you know, so you've got, you've got the phone call from Houghton High School to the Blackhawks to probably to uh, human resources, the head of human resources. You've got the fired versus the resigned issue. You've got the question of who had ultimate decision-making authority regarding the positive reference or the reference and the firing versus resigning. Um, and you've got, you, you know, I don't even know if human resources was in the loop on this. Right. I mean, exactly. it's possible that, you know, uh, McIsaac just said, you know what, we're not going to tell human resources. They might not have known at all what was going on. 
Um, and then the last thing I'd say about the positive reviews. So you've got the fired versus resigned. You've got the positive reference, which could have just been a verification of employment dates. Right. We don't know. But the yeah. other part of this, too, is they kind of the Hawks kind of misled Hutton High School by letting this guy put his name on the Stanley Cup and by giving him his day with the Stanley Cup. So mm-hmm. that's a unique fact where it's so indirect but, you know, if you're at Houghton High School and you say, oh, well, this guy's sitting outside our front door celebrating with the Stanley Cup today, we're having a hard time thinking that the Hawks thought anything bad about him. Because if they did, we're, we're, we don't think that would have happened. So it's by them letting that happen, it's almost like they're OK with, you know, um, it, it occurring. Um, but I don't know. I mean. The second case is going to get fascinating because I don't see a basis to dismiss it based on the statute of limitations because of this pedophile pre-statute of limitations of 20 years. And uh-huh. in, a, in a weird kind of way, it's, it's it doesn't dig as deep as the first one, but it, 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 it's going to ask some really scary questions the Hawks probably don't want to dig into. Kent, does the and or language referring to the letter of reference or uh, employment verification, does that indicate to you that the, uh, I guess the prosecutor does not know, I don't know if that's the right word, that the, jo- the jo- that John Doe 2's lawyers aren't sure if a physical letter of recommendation exists. Yeah, so here's what I'd say about that. I mean, you can't be reckless in your pleading, right? So, you know, plaintiff's lawyers like uh, Susan Luggins and myself, we write complaints all the time, but you know, when we're not sure, we try to let the we try to create some language in there to say we're not sure. The other weasel word that lawyers use all the time is they say <laughs> by inf- by information and belief, which is mm. that's that really amounts to I got a hunch and don't sue me for it. Um, <laughs> so, um, but she didn't say by information and belief, but she did use the you know and or and you know by using that word or that little tiny word or you don't commit yourself to either option. That's just one of the two. So, but I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, at that point, when you're drafting a complaint, what you want is discovery, right? You need to get past the motion to dismiss mm-hmm. so you can find out what really happened. I mean, there's only so much your client's going to know in this situation. The real guts of this thing are the depositions under oath of the other players on the, of the other people on the other side, where you can find out what your client had no idea was going on behind the scenes. So, and, you know, she's doing a hard, she's working really hard to try to get there. So we'll see. Yeah. And yet another obstacle that uh, private team investigations and even NHL investigations would run into is no matter what players you talk to, none of them are under oath when they're talking to you. But obviously in a discovery type situation, like you just alluded to, those guys would be under oath and we would either get a pretty quick answer to who knew what, when, whether it's Jonathan Taves or whoever else they asked. But in these regular investigations that the Blackhawks or the NHL would be doing, you wouldn't necessarily uh, get that. Obviously, you wouldn't get that backup and you may not get uh, the same answers. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, the other part of it, too, is I would think on a case like this that's fairly public, most of these guys would get personal attorneys, Mm -hmm. you know. And in the other part, no, no one's talking about this, but, you know. I bet all these guys have talked to a, a personal attorney. I mean, you know, um, you know, I mean, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not parading that around, but I mean, do you think McIsaac or Bowman or McDonough or Gary, those four guys that, you know, are sitting in that room as far as it's been publicly revealed, do you think that those four guys don't have lawyers advising them? You know, I would be surprised if they don't have a lawyer already. I mean, so you think they'd be they would be talking to their own lawyers, not in, their own, not their lawyers own employed by lawyer. the team. It would, be, it would be totally low key, and the only time that lawyer would appear is if somebody wanted to take a statement from them or take their deposition. But other than that, they're just in the background, and okay. you know, any and, and they probably will real behind the scenes type stuff. But just basically to try to you know tell these people you know, what is in their interest and how their interests might vary from their colleague that they're working with every day, you know? I mean, they need to know that, you know? Yeah. And uh, and they need to know if they have personal exposure and they know, need to know how it might affect their job going down the road and their reputation. 
I mean, there's just a lot of things to think about if you're going to represent somebody like that. I mean, take Gary, for instance. I mean, he's got a medical license of some kind, right? So, you know, if you're his personal lawyer, you might want to talk to him about that, right? You know, <laughs> uh, he, I'm sure he cares about that, you know? So things like that come up. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, there's only so much you're going to get from, I'd be interested to see whether McDonough's willing to talk to the uh, investigators, you know, without a subpoena and without a, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, those, th that investigation we know got to those four guys, where it went after that and who was the ultimate decision maker. I have no idea. And it could have stopped right there or one of those guys could have been, been the decision maker or it could have kept going up some kind of food chain to who knows where. So, um, you know, it's just, those are important questions we need to know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think that is such to me when I first heard about this and, and as the scene was sort of laid out, I found myself thinking about, and again, I want to be clear. I, I don't know. I have no idea, but just knowing what I know about how the John McDonough Blackhawks operated was no bad news gets out ever. Everything dies here. It, none of this leaves this room. I could definitely see something like that occurring. I'm not saying it did. I'm just trying to think of, you know, realistically knowing well, how the organization what, ran at that time. What, what, what is the likely a, scenario? What made him a star was because he con he was so controlled the image of the Blackhawks and did everything in his power to promote it and make it positive. You know, the, the, the scary part here is, is that what looked like a good short-term move of which is basically hide and deny uh, might not be the right long-term move, you know? And so, you know, again, if I'm in the room with those four guys, I say human resources is going to hire Jenner and Block tomorrow. We're going to suspend Aldridge until this investigation is over. And then we'll decide whether we're going to either fire him or we're going to let him resign. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you basically, and we're going to follow the employee handbook to a T about investigations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And we're going to, we're going to make sure that nobody retaliates and we're going to make sure there are no job negative job consequences for any of these people that work for us. And I mean, you know, at that point, I don't see there ever being any lawsuit except maybe against Aldrich. And, you know, mm -hmm. he, he's he's judgment proof, probably. So it's not nothing's going on there. So what so Kent, what do you think the I know, obviously, we just got the amended complaints. The Blackhawks still have to respond to those if they intend to file a motion to dismiss on either of like the counts. I guess they could still do that. Is that the next step? Like what's kind of the next thing that we can kind of expect to unfold from this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, well, I mean, that for one and Doe, John Doe one, we got to find out whether this repressed memory uh, contention is enough to get past the statute of limitations. I think that's the most important thing there. I don't know. The, the second lawsuit looks like a good one to me, which means that the motion to dismiss would be denied. And then we'd be off to what's called written discovery, which is exchanging documents and, inter and interrogatory questions. Uh, from there, that usually takes a few months. From there, there's subpoenas that go out. And then most importantly, start the depositions. And, you know, that now you're starting to put people under oath. And, um, you know, generally those those depths, I mean, at least in state court right now, the, the federal courts, they're seven hours and state court, they're three hours. But, you know, um, you know, th those are the parameters. And if there's a lot, if things get more complicated, sometimes judges will extend the time frames a little bit. Um, so that would kind of be the next steps there. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that if, if John Doe 2 gets past the motion to dismiss, you know, the Hawks might want that one to go away. You know, I don't know. I mean, again, it's not every defendant that is, is concerned about what the public thinks. I mean, these guys are trying to sell 22,000 seats a night to, mm -hmm. the, to the public, right? That's not your average defendant, right? So, you know, um, you know, they got to think about the big picture here, too. And um, so I, I don't know. I can't advise them on that. I mean, that's a different kind of <laughs> That's a different kind of consideration here. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons they might have gotten so hardcore on John Doe 1 was because of the statute of limitations problem. They didn't know until John Doe 2 got fired that they might have a different problem on their hand. Well, Kent, this has been incredibly enlightening. As this thing goes on, I'm sure we'll lean on you again for more information. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the Madhouse podcast. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? 
No, I just let me say this. I, you know, I listen to you guys all the time and one of the, it's been a pleasure to, to sponsor you guys. And uh, just because you're so insightful about the Blackhawks, I played four years of college football, but more importantly, I played four years of college hockey and I still, every Saturday morning, you can find me at the Blackhawks practice rank <laughs> and you guys know hockey. I don't know how to say it, but you know, hockey, yeah, I can't say it any more clearly. And uh, it's just a pleasure. I mean, you, you guys get some behind the scene insight, but that alone doesn't make you a great um, a commentator on what's going on. You got to understand the sport and uh, you guys are, you know, a one in my mind. And uh, that's, that's what has made it so enjoyable to listen to you guys. So thank you for that. Well, Kent, we appreciate it. And thanks for, yep. uh, you know, your expertise has been invaluable uh, on and off the air. So we'll talk soon. And uh, in the meantime, take care. And uh, anything you want us to know and our audience to know, you've got a way to get in touch with us. Just let us know and we'll get it on the air ASAP. Thanks, man. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Kent. Thank you so much. All right, Kent. Be well, man. That was our interview with Kent Sinson of the Sinson Law Group. Thank you so much for Kent for taking a few minutes out of his very busy schedule to join us to uh, try to make some sense of this brawl of this Brad Aldrich situation oh man it's so ugly and i you know i know james and i have talked about it a lot as it's been going on we wanted to bring in an expert and i think we did a good job doing just that so thanks again to kent thank you for tuning into the madhouse podcast we greatly appreciate it make sure you rate review subscribe to the podcast send us those screenshots of those five star reviews and you'll be entered to win a madhouse podcast prize pack but until next time for my partner james Naveau, this is jay zawoski this has been the madhouse chicago hockey podcast the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Fry the Coop, Triple Threat Sports, and by the Sinsin Law Group. I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.